We come now to our third uh, Advent message of the season. Our scripture is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Let's read this passage of God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not recognize him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. It is our desire as we come to this part of our worship today, Father, that we would have such a measure of your Holy Spirit, uh, that we would be able to hear your word with glad hearts, receiving hearts, obedient hearts, that we would be fed by this word concerning Christ, your Son, and that through our understanding of this passage, draw nearer and closer to you. Our Father, we would pray this, because we know that attentive listening to your word is honoring to you. It's part of our worship. It brings glory to you, Almighty God, because it speaks of the incarnation of your Son. It speaks of his coming into this world. It speaks of that great plan of redemption by which you have intended purposefully and successfully to bring about redemption of all of those that you've given to your Son. And so as we listen, may your Holy Spirit pour out upon us this grace upon grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. One of the words that figures prominently in this text, and, and if you were reading it in the Greek, it would be the word cosmos, uh, is the word 
world. Uh, but as I was looking through this passage this week and preparing this message, because of the word cosmos, it caused me to think, as it might suggest to some of you, of that uh, 1980 PBS series on television by Carl Sagan, you know, entitled Cosmos, which had that most significant tagline that was repeated again and again in different ways. The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Now, I think rightly so from the standpoint of uh, television audiences. Uh, Carl Sagan's big production uh, received lots of awards because it was thoroughly well done in terms of what it was attempting to do. Um, and what it was attempting to do was to create the most powerful storyline that one might ever imagine uh, to exalt that same narrative which ancient Greek philosophers had formulated and argued for more than 2,000 years ago. Uh, the essential idea being that there is no God, there's no ultimate supernatural explanation for the cosmos. The cosmos is all that is, all that ever was, and all that ever will be. Now, in one sense, that's the connection we have between this passage the ancient biblical world, and today. Because as we think about the ancient biblical world, we actually, like we do today, have both ends of the pagan spectrum. Um, back then, uh, there were many who seriously and superstitiously worshipped all of the nature gods, as well as those on the other end who were attracted to a more intellectual understanding of paganism, and they began to endorse this strong materialistic perspective of atheism. Uh, the declaration that, look, the cosmos is all that there is, and all that there ever was, and all that there ever will be. So, whether then or now, uh, the gospel message comes upon this same conception of the cosmos. And therefore, we have to ask ourselves the question, has the coming of Jesus actually come in such a manner that it has produced cosmic significance? Well, we wouldn't be here this morning celebrating the third Sunday of Advent if we didn't believe that the coming of Christ has the same importance and the same significance now as it did then. Uh, what we've been saying over the last several weeks goes along these lines. Human history has a very definite purpose. God has been moving human history from a past beginning to a future consummation. But when we look at that history, because of what God has done in our lives through the gospel of his son, we recognize the lever and fulcrum of all of human history is the coming of Christ into this world and his atoning work upon the cross. That's why we celebrate Advent and Christmas. That's why we celebrate Easter, Good Friday, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. With this conviction that Christmas and Easter are never to be divided, never to be separated, never to be celebrated independently of one another in our understanding and in our Christian faith. We know 
because it's part of the great significance of this season that the cradle, which evokes tremendous sentiment within us, all of the nativity scene, all of the thoughts about the baby Jesus in a manger, it evokes great sentiment in us, ultimately because of the truth of the cross for which the baby was born. We always remember Jesus Christ, the baby born to die. And today's theme is consistent with what we've been looking at over the last several weeks. Essentially, that this cradle-to-cross connection must always be kept in view. The coming of Christ into this world was for the sake of the salvation of his people, to save his people from their sins. This message now takes on the greatest cosmic significance when we realize that the baby who was born and the full-grown man who dies is fully recognized in Scripture and in our faith as the incarnation of God himself. Now, this title this morning of the sermon, his message is Salvation, uh, is I've done it this way, not only for the sake of the alliteration, you know, the mission is salvation, the message is salvation, the manifestation is salvation. But because this word is used in 1 Timothy 3.16, and it captures the incarnation. The Apostle Paul has written in that passage in Timothy, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The meaning of the word manifestation is simply revelation. To manifest is to reveal. So as we begin, as we begin looking at this passage and the the particular things that I want to call your attention to this morning, we will do so with a, a with an already understanding of what this gospel prologue is all about. That is to say, I believe that I'm saying nothing that you don't already know. Uh, this passage from verses 1 to 18, of course, is about Jesus Christ. We are told Jesus is the Logos. And the Logos, the word, is God. And the Logos, who was the Word, was with God at the very beginning of creation, the creation of the cosmos. Uh, Everything that is in the entire cosmos has been created in and through Christ. We're told in verse 14 that the Word, the Logos, becomes flesh. He is manifested in this world by way of incarnation. Jesus Christ is true God and true man, and he lived in this world. And then verse 18 states forcefully that in this manifestation, in the incarnation, Christ has fully revealed the fatherhood of God to his redeemed. So taking what's in this passage, I want to organize Uh, the idea of the manifestation of salvation in Christ in these three ways. His manifestation is light and life to a fallen world. 
His manifestation is the glory of Emmanuel, God with us. And his manifestation is the revealing of the Father to the redeemed. Now, in the first place, this first idea coming out of verses 4 through 13 is that Jesus coming into the world, his incarnation, his manifestation, is light and life to a fallen world. Now, because of modern science, we have tremendous insight into this relationship between light and sunlight and life, all of life on the earth. All of life is dependent upon light, specifically the light we receive from the sun. Without this life, this light, life on earth would not exist. So light is actually the very source energy of all of life. But even the ancient pagans of biblical times had at least a similarly strong idea of this connection between light, between sunlight and life. And in many ways, this was the center of their worship. The worship of the sun was pervasive. In fact, some kind of sun deity shows up as the most worshipped god in almost all of the pagan cultures. It's almost a universal truth to say that paganism worships the sun as the highest source of life in the cosmos, the greatest of all the gods. So when John says in verses 4 and 5 that in Jesus there was life, and that life was the light of men, and that this light shines in such a way that darkness cannot overcome it, that there's never any eclipse to this light, never any nighttime that can actually darken this light, John was making a claim that even to the minds of pagans would have been a claim of cosmic significance. John would have been saying to his readers that in all of the cosmos, there was no one nor anything that is more powerful or ultimate than Jesus. That all of light, all of life have their source and foundation and grounding in him. The cosmic significance of this claim about what is really ultimate would say that Jesus is greater than all other human beings. Even more, he's greater than all the gods. Even more, he's greater than the greatest light in the heavens, the sun. Even more, he's greater than all of the cosmos, since Jesus is at the very beginning prior to the cosmos, because all of the cosmos was actually created through him. Then, what did Jesus come to do? Well, specifically in verse 7, we are told by virtue of the ministry of John the Baptist that Jesus came to be believed in. That was the calling of John the Baptist, to prepare the way for the Lord, to bear witness to Christ, uh, as the light and life, so that people might believe in Christ. Now, since Jesus is greater than anything conceived of in pagan thought, he would be most worthy to believe in. Nothing would make more sense than to believe in the one who has all light and life in himself. Yet, in reality, what does the prologue to this gospel tell us? How was Christ received? Here, a gospel writer, candidly honest. This is the historical truth. 
even though Jesus was in the cosmos, that is, in the world, and even though the world came into his existence through him, the surprising fact is that the world, the cosmos, did not know him. And that raises a very significant fact, a key biblical truth. This is a fallen cosmos. The people who live in this world are themselves fallen from the truth, fallen away from the light. So much so that John will say in chapter 3 that men have loved darkness rather than light. Now, even more surprising, in a sense, is verse 11, where John reports that even the Jewish people who were his own people rejected Christ. So Christ is rejected by this fallen world. And on the whole, both Jews and Gentile people reject the light and the life that are in Christ. Nevertheless, Jesus came to bring light and life to this fallen world. And so John makes it clear that in spite of this fallenness that we find in human nature, the manifestation of Christ has not been a failure. In verses 12 and 13, John states that those who did receive him, who did believe in the name of Jesus, to them God gave the right to become children of God. And then in a tightly connected fashion, John speaks of these as undergoing a spiritual rebirth that is completely outside of human agency. John uses three phrases to denote comprehensively human agency. And you can see that. And he negates each one of these in order to affirm one source entirely for the spiritual rebirth. And that is God himself. Now for Christians, this is our testimony. Born into this world is part of fallen humanity. But God has worked in us a spiritual rebirth. It's by his working in us that we become children of God. Christ is light and life to us and for us and in us. We have received Jesus and believed in his name because this is God's gift to us. We have been unworthy recipients and yet God has worked in us to give to us the right to become children of God. Now this is why when we sing the third stanza of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we are singing what has happened to us. We are singing our testimony. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That is our testimony. We have been born unto a second birth. The manifestation of Christ as light and life to a fallen world, that has been our salvation. 
Uh, secondly, we see that his manifestation is the glory of Emmanuel, God with us, particularly verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In my early days of Christ, uh, being a Christian, those early days in college, the best published defense of the Christian faith, well, at least the one that helped me the most to actually see the significance of Christ, was a, a small little booklet. I believe it was put out by InterVarsity Press uh, that gave a, a side-by-side comparison of the major religious founders. It's, it set them out side-by-side, and then it compared them and contrasted them. So it talked about Buddha, it talked about Muhammad, it talked about Moses, maybe a couple of others. All, all the founders of the great world religions. So it, it presented something of their biography, something of their history, and especially something of their religious claims. Now, in comparison to them, what was truly outstanding in every sense about Christ were, were three unique claims that the New Testament writers made about Christ, that Christ fulfilled, but these same kinds of claims were all denied by all the other religious founders and by themselves and by all their followers. And the first was prophecy. Jesus was the fulfillment of many, many Jewish prophecies about the Messiah, made hundreds of years earlier. No such claims were made about any of the other religious founders. And I stop and ask you this. Have you ever taken the time to actually do that study? To actually uh, find a resource that will acquaint you with all of these Old Testament prophecies and then read them and study them and understand, understand why the best uh, Christian scholars beginning in the New Testament era and afterwards have said, yes, this is Christ fulfilling this passage prophetically of the word of God. I would encourage you. It's one of the most significant things you can do to build up your faith and to encourage you and, and strengthen you that the word of God is supernaturally prophetic. And that Christ is the fulfillment of these prophecies. But then secondly, we, we have the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus died just as he was prophesied to die. And for the reasons that he was prophesied to die, Isaiah 53. And Jesus was resurrected from the dead on the third day as proof of who he was. But no other religious founder ever made such a claim. Never made any death predictions. Never made any resurrection claims because none of that ever happened with respect to these other founders of religions. And then thirdly, the claim to be God. All of the New Testament writers, as well as Jesus himself, made the claim that he was God incarnate. God who came. God who, without ceasing to be fully God, became truly one of us. Now, what was obvious to me was two things. There I am in college, I'm reading this and thinking about this. Here were two very, very obvious things. No other religion has made 
any kind of claims that come close to the cosmic significance that the claims about Christ happen to be. The Christian faith, the claims about Jesus, are totally unique. There's simply no comparison. Now, the other thing that was obvious to me was this. If true, no other set of beliefs, no other religious ideology, uh, no philosophy, or any program for living could ever come close in comparison to what Jesus brought and what the New Testament would say about what it means to live a truly purposeful and significant life in relationship to God. But as I grew older, even more than that, I began to understand that no other faith or philosophy ever comes close in preparing people to die or to give people a way to look at death or to give people the way to face the inevitability of death. And yet every true believer in Christ faces death with a promise that the one who rose from the dead has prepared our heavenly home. That when we die, he will bring us to himself. Now this is the glory of Christ, full of grace and truth, that he is God incarnate, and his glory is to give to those who place their trust in him this overwhelming treasure of grace and truth. This is another way of saying what John has said here. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. Grace sufficient to cover all of our sins, past, present, future. And truth sufficient to lead us into what it means to truly love God and what it means, both in word and deed, to truly love our neighbors as we love ourselves so that our lives have both eternal and temporal significance and purpose. And again, this grace upon grace given to us by Christ is that which enables us to love as we ought to love and to know as we ought to know when all the world seems stacked against who we are and what we believe. All of this to be found in knowing Christ. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Then thirdly, the manifestation, Christ's manifestation, is the revealing of the Father to the redeemed. When Jesus came, and when he was manifested in terms of his earthly life, he was in himself the revelation of the Father. Now, here we need to see the connection between verse 1 and verse 18. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, verse 1 tells us 
Jesus is the Word. He is the Logos. He is with God, and He is God. Now, the word Logos has several possible translatable meanings, and, and really all of them comprehend who Christ is. Christ comprehends all of them. When we look at what the meanings are in the Greek language, so Jesus is God's speech. Jesus is God's message and his logic and his reason and his truth. Jesus is his word. Now, what this means in terms of the person of Christ is this. Jesus is all of these as they relate to God in perfect human form and a perfect and true human nature. He is perfect Godhood. He's perfect manhood. United in the one person of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Now that's reflected so faithfully in our Advent and Christmas hymns. In the second stanza of O Come All You Faithful, we, we sing, God of God, light of light, Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, the very God, begotten, not created. And then Charles Wesley has, has rightly written, and hark the herald angels sing, second stanza again, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. But of course, much, much earlier in the history of the church, when the church was first required to officially defend the deity of Christ uh, against the Arian heresy, we have, uh, and also against, um, an anti-Trinitarian kind of idea. It expressed this about Christ in the Nicene Creed, 325 AD, where it says, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Now, pagan Greek philosophy also had its logos idea, which came into Greek thinking and Greek vocabulary uh, at least five centuries before Christ. The central idea, especially as it had been developed and then expressed by the Stoics uh, in the New Testament era, was that the logos was the principle of rational order and structure that permeated all of the cosmos and was even the rationality of every human being. But this Logos was not a person. The Logos was only a principle, an abstraction. It was the impersonal, rational, logical, structural part of the cosmos uh, it didn't even exist apart from the cosmos, and it didn't exist before the cosmos. It was simply the principle of rationality indwelling and inhering all of reality. For all of these Greek ideas were all part of its 
pantheistic understanding of the cosmos, that the cosmos is simply one thing ultimately, a thing that is divine. However, think about this, that when someone educated in Greek philosophy, someone who would, for instance, follow the school of the Stoics, became a Christian, he would find in Christ the true Logos. He would come to believe that in this person, Jesus, this person in whom he's placed his faith and trust, this person who died for his sins, he would come to see that in this human person, all things were created through him and for him. He would come to see that this person, Jesus, is also the God, the Logos, who was before all things. And that in this person, all things hold together. You see, he would come to see most significantly that the Logos is not some impersonal principle of the cosmos, but a living person. Even this wonderful God-man, that the Logos became flesh and lived among us for a while. And we have beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that by faith, by believing in Christ, by trusting him for this grace of forgiveness of sins, a person would actually enter into a personal relationship with the Logos, the true Son of God, who is God himself. And then we connect this to verse 18, to this phrase. Where the writer of the gospel has written this, quote, he has made him known. You see, no one has ever seen God at any time. But Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side, his bosom, he has made him known. Now, the Greek word in this phrase, made known, is at the very heart of this idea of manifestation of revelation. For in the Greek, this word means to describe or to relate, to explain, to expound. We get the English word exegete directly out of the Greek word. And the word exegete is used in biblical studies to mean the opening up of the text of the Bible to give its true and full explanation. And so when we apply this to verse 18, we see that Jesus has made the Father known. It means that Jesus has opened up the meaning of God, the Father, and has given to us the true and full explanation of who God really is. Which is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, God whom no one has ever seen. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And then Jesus says this about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Meaning, not only that no one can be saved except through Christ, but also that no one can actually understand who God is except through what Christ has revealed. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, He who has seen me 
as seeing the Father. The heart of our deepest understanding about God, what the Word is, what Jesus is, all that we know about Jesus reveals the nature and the character and the love of the Father. The incarnation is the manifestation, the revelation of what God the Father is like. Jesus came to show us the Father. It is the Son of God, whether in nature, but particularly and especially in grace, who makes the Father known. What we find in the perfect humanity of Christ, we know is true and truly reflected and truly a reflection of the deepest aspects of the infinitely perfect nature of the Father. We learn from Jesus the truth of God's divine love for us, the unchanging agape of God, the steadfast love which never ceases, never changes, never ebbs and flows, never waxes nor wanes, which always remains the same toward us, demonstrated toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when Jesus came, when Jesus was manifested, he was in himself the very revelation of the Father for us who would believe. Now we began with the word cosmos because the beginning of the Gospel of John is filled with cosmic significance. We have the mission of Christ, salvation. We have the message of Christ, salvation. We have the manifestation of Christ, which is salvation. We have Jesus as the fulcrum of human history, B.C. to A.D. But we also need to see the personal relevance and the personal significance. Is Christ the fulcrum of your life? Do you in principle follow Carl Sagan that the cosmos is all there ever was, all there is, all there ever will be? Or do you believe in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt for a while among us and we have beheld his glory Glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. Do we follow the one who has himself fully revealed to us the Father? You see, if Christ is the fulcrum of your own history, then these words of this ancient Christmas hymn celebrate your faith. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending He. 
of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see. Of that birth forever blessed, when the virgin full of grace, by the Holy Ghost conceiving, bore the Savior of our race, and the babe, the world's Redeemer, first revealed his sacred face. This is he, whom heaven-taught singers sang of old with one accord, whom the scriptures of the prophets promised in their faithful word. Now he shines, the long-expected. Let creation praise its Lord. Christ, to thee, with God the Father, and, O Holy Ghost, to thee, him, and chant, and high thanksgiving, and unwearied praises be, honor, glory, and dominion, and eternal victory. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, give us wonder, praise, gratitude for all that you have done for us in your Son, our Savior, even Jesus, our Lord, in his name, amen.